Good morning, everyone. Uh, grace and peace to you. Um, I'd like to open this sermon this morning by asking a question, um, and that question is if you have ever had a eureka moment. In the Greek, that word eureka simply means um, I have found it, right? It's a phrase, uh, eureka, that is made popular in a story about Archimedes. He's an ancient Greek mathematician. Now, the king one day asked Archimedes to weigh the gold content of a crown that was made for him to make sure that the man who made it wasn't a schemer and that he didn't slip in some silver um, instead of gold. So Archimedes was pondering the problem, and he was pondering it for quite a long time when he realized, as he actually as he noticed, that he was, as he was slipping into his morning bath and he noticed the water spilling over the sides, when he realized that by weighing the volume of water displaced by an object, he could determine how much gold and silver it contained. And so according to the story, Archimedes leapt from his bath, began running down the streets naked, shouting, I found it, I found it. Right? Hence, today, we still have Archimedes' principle. Right? And while I'm not asking if you've ever run down the streets naked, I am asking if you have ever had a eureka moment where the lights went on and everything made sense. I had one not too long ago, just watching a movie, uh, The Power of the Dog. It ended, and I came away thinking, I missed something. There's something there that is not quite making sense. The movie is profoundly unsettling, and it ends rather abruptly, a little bit like the Gospel of Mark or the Book of Jonah. It leaves the reader with more questions than answers. Anyway, to make a long story short, there were a few subtle details that I had missed that on further contemplation cast the movie in an entirely different light, right? Eureka, okay, it makes sense. I get it now. I get what's being said. Now, our passage this morning invites us to make a similar discovery. For the disciples and for us, there is something that we need to get that we need to understand before everything makes sense. Now, it comes to us in verse 34 of our passage this morning, which reads, But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of the statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. So the penny has yet to drop. The disciples neither understood nor comprehended the very, very plain statement that Jesus made to them. Now, verse 31 through 33. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. After they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. So, as it stands, we're almost mystified by the disciples' incomprehension. But their incomprehension makes sense given the wider context. Remember last week, the main concern was discipleship. 
that is, following Jesus. The ruler, he could not break with his covetousness, and so could not make the necessary commitment to follow Christ. The disciples did. They left all, family and home, their very own lives to follow the one who called them. And where are they following him to? Where are they going? He says, follow me, but where? They're going to Jerusalem. Behold, Jesus says to the disciples in our passage, we are going to Jerusalem. Now we've known that detail for some time. The disciples and Jesus began their journey to Jerusalem all the way back in chapter 9. So he says, follow me and follow me to Jerusalem. But what awaits them? Jesus and the disciples in Jerusalem, the cross. The Son of Man will be handed over, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. So if last week was about making the decision to follow Jesus, this week is about the nature of that decision. The disciples are following Jesus to his death. And it's precisely this that they don't understand. It's this main feature of their journey, namely the destination that they can't quite comprehend. So Jesus charts the course and the disciples wander ignorantly behind. They don't know the fate determined in the scriptures long ago that awaits them. But we should expect this, the disciples' ignorance. So let's rewind some to a decisive turning point in the gospel and put our passage in still wider context. And this decisive turning point is Peter's confession. So the passage reads, beginning in Luke chapter 19, it says, And it happened that while he was praying, that's Jesus, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. But he warned them, instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So Jesus asks two questions. Who do the people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? The people, on the one hand, are distinguished from the disciples on the other. While the people think Jesus to be one of the great prophets risen again, the disciples, represented in Peter, know better. Peter says that Jesus is the Christ of God. And that is, that confession, essentially what distinguishes the church from the masses. While people set forth their various answers, and there are many, Jesus was a great man. He was a religious teacher of wisdom, or he was a lunatic, and so forth. We, the church, 
give only one answer, our confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So the church, that's us, is the church because we understand beneath the chaos and confusion the true identity of the man from Nazareth. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. Now, we hold a bunch of wrong-headed views. Believe me, I've encountered some. But we're not wrong about that. Jesus is the Christ. And while that confession is true, and while that confession is true, that Jesus is the Christ, and it does grant one admission to the church, it's not enough. The church must make its confession, but more importantly, it's more important that we understand our confession. We're Christians because we say Jesus is the Christ, but what does it mean to say that Jesus is the Christ? So Peter says rightly, you are the Christ of God, but Jesus goes on to define what that actually means. He gives content to those words in verse 22. He tells Peter and the disciples, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. Now, we know from Matthew and Mark that Jesus, his messianic definition, did not sit well with the disciples. In fact, Peter rebuked Jesus when he heard these words, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. He confesses Jesus is Christ. Jesus tells him what it means, and Peter says, God forbid it. The point is, we can make the right confession. Jesus is the Christ, but nevertheless, completely misunderstand what it means. Or in other words, we can get the right answer on the test, but still have learned nothing. Like the disciples, we can commit our entire lives to following Jesus, but nevertheless expect something from him that he has not promised, and make him out to be something that he is not. In our own way, we say those same words, God forbid it, Lord. That's not what it means. That's not what I signed up for. Peter Lightheart uh, on this passage says, When Peter uh, recoils at the thought of Jesus being rejected and killed, we're likely to recoil with him. He says, playing the stronger man, that's what the Messiah is for. Going to Jerusalem to be rejected, mocked, tortured, on the other hand, that is the least messianic fate we can imagine. God forbid it, Lord. So Jesus' messianic definition, he says, this is what it means for me to be the Christ, is an affront to our natural senses. The Messiah is not some weakling who gets thrashed by his enemies and pinned to a cross. That's ridiculous. The Messiah is someone who takes charge, who crushes his enemies and asserts his control. That sounds more like the Messiah. But as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the cross, a crucified, rejected Messiah, is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
It's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. The true nature of what it means to be the Messiah is so unexpected, so revolutionary, that we cannot even make sense of it in our normal categories. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So, it may very well be that, like the disciples, we have the Spirit, yet remain natural. And so completely misunderstand the cross which is at the heart of our faith. And so, put Jesus in a box, confining him and his way, what it means to follow him to our bankrupt natural sensibilities. Thus, also like the disciples, evading the offense of the cross, evading the foolishness of the cross, and making Jesus out to be some earthly hero that we can admire, rather than the rejected and crucified Christ that he is. So there remains, this passage so clearly shows us, another step in our understanding to be taken where we break from the same ignorance that hampered the disciples into a clearer vision of who Christ is. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Where we move from very earthly conceptions about what it means to be a disciple, about what it means to be a Christian, into heavenly ones. Hence, whether we recognize it or not, we may need ourselves that eureka moment where everything is transformed and nothing is the same after. Now, now there's a test to determine on what side of things that we stand. And that test is our actions. This is a theme that runs all throughout, literally all, three, all four Gospels. It's our actions. Only moments after Jesus instituted Holy Communion in Luke chapter 22, again, defining what it means to be the Christ, giving up his body, giving up his very life for his disciples. As soon as he does that, a fight breaks out among the disciples. And what are they arguing about? Which one of them is the greatest? Now, their distance, right, as Jesus is instituting communion, and they're arguing about which one of them is going to get the most glory In that moment, they've never been more distant from Jesus. They've never been further apart from him. He's about to be rendered nothing. And the disciples are deluded with visions of distinction and honor. And so the test, judging by the disciples, is essentially whether or not we're caught up in a spirit of competition. Again, notice what Jesus does. He abandons rank And he assumes the lowest position. While the disciples, they're jostling for the top spot. Thus, we are natural men and women to the extent that we imitate the disciples. Jealous to secure our own position, to have our own way. And we are spiritual to the extent that we imitate Jesus. Abandoning any notion of rank and becoming the least. 
Again, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3, to a very divided church, he says, For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? So the spirit of competition in our lives, that we are merely natural men and women, is revealed in strife. It's the way it played out with the disciples, that's the way it played out in the Corinthian church, and that's the way it plays out anywhere in our lives. So what are our marriages like? What are our relationships with our children, friends, and co-workers like? Our relationships within this church? Does it always have to be your way? Do you have to have the last laugh or the final say? Can you tolerate being snubbed or being second? Can you submit to anything that is not something you came up with? That's the test to know the meaning of those words, whether we're jostling for the top spot or like Christ. The meaning of those words, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So what then? If we are to have that sudden flash of insight that changes everything, how do we get there? What can we do? How, how, how do we have that moment where things click? Like it did for the disciples. We'll come to that later. Well, the answer is really quite simple. Come to Jesus only through the cross. Understand Jesus in no other way. And that's our our second point. If our first was that we need this eureka moment, the second is that it's found in the cross. The cross defines Christ. Again, hear what the apostle says. 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, But he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The cross, in other words, is not something that we believe to get in and then leave behind. It's our ticket of admission and then we go our way. Rather than the ABCs about Jesus and his identity, the cross is the A to Z about Jesus and his identity. Again, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The disciples want to define Jesus' messianic identity according to some other framework. God forbid it, Lord. No, no, that's not how it's going to play out. It looks like this. But Jesus allows only one framework. He says, this is what it means for me to be the Christ, and it's the cross. So Peter says, God forbid, and Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. There's only one way to come to Jesus, only one way to understand him and to know him by, and that way is the cross. All other ways are satanic, which begs the question, what is the cross? What does it mean to say that it defines who the Christ is? What does it tell us about our Lord? 
Luke chapter 18, 31 through 33, our passage. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. Jesus says, this is what it means. And all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. It's quite an ugly picture, these words, and we'll confront them as we approach toward our celebration of Holy Week and Good Friday and Easter, not too far from now. But this ugly picture, Jesus says, is what it means to be the Christ. Spoken about long ago through the prophets, this is the messianic role ordained for him to accomplish. The suffering servant, the one talked about in Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. So, what I think this passage suggests is that unless we know Jesus as the rejected Christ, mocked, scourged, spit upon, we have yet to know him as he truly is. Knowing Jesus as the one who calms the storm, who casts out demons, who feeds the multitudes, is not quite enough. Unless we know him as the man on the cross, we are missing the one thing about him that matters the most. So the road mapped out for the Christ is one defined by pain and humiliation and rejection, but... That's not the last word. Such statements about Jesus seem foolish and even irreverent. But beneath the offense, right, beneath the offense of the cross, there is something more to be said. Again, the apostles' words, 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Right? A crucified, rejected Messiah, mock spit upon, it's foolish to our sensibilities. Yet, he says, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the natural man stops at the scandal of the cross. It's foolishness to him, and so he turns away. But the spiritual man presses deeper into it. He is given an understanding to see that beneath the outward shame and humiliation, there lies the very power of God. The weakest thing is the most powerful thing. God defines what it means to be the Christ in the exact opposite way that we expect him to. And God achieves salvation by doing the same. God triumphs over sin and evil by allowing sin and evil to apparently triumph over him. His strength, his power is demonstrated through weakness. So our natural minds have to stop there. We can only progress as spiritual men and women. Our natural capacities have to give way and submit to the humiliation of the cross. 1 Corinthians 1, 25. 
The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that they, so that he, rather, may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. So our natural understanding dies at the cross, and we're given a spiritual understanding in the resurrection. Think about the disciples. Think about Peter, who at one point said, God forbid it. And then later, with the Apostle Paul says, I determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. The transformation. So there upon the cross, in the antithesis of all that we know God to be, he reveals himself. He demonstrates his power and weakness, his wisdom and foolishness, his goodness and evil, his divinity in manhood. So here's the point. In order to know God, we must meet him where he dwells. God hides himself in the weakness and the foolishness of the cross. And if we can't find him there, it's because we're not humble enough to seek him there. He becomes humble to make us humble. We must not make Christ big because then we never become small. We must not make Christ mighty because then we never become weak. And we must not make Christ wise because then we never become foolish. Again, God has chosen the foolish things of the world, namely the cross, to shame the wise so that no man may boast before God. He says, if you want to come to me, this is how you come, through the cross, through lowliness and humility. So Jesus' humility humbles ours. Well, to put an answer then to this question that we've been posing, what does it mean to be the Christ of God? In a word, it means humility. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As he existed from all eternity, Christ was equal to God. He possessed every privilege and prerogative of the divinity, all power and glory, the very same as the Father from all eternity. And what does he do with this? The passage says that he does not regard it as a thing to be grasped. Now, that's a hard-to-translate phrase, and it means something like to be exploited or to be used for advantage. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that Jesus, rather than using his status as God's equal, as the only begotten Son of God for his advantage, to assert himself, to have control, to come and receive power and all this other Uh, accolades, whatever, instead of that, he says he empties himself. He does the exact opposite of what we'd expect. 
Literally, he pours himself out, embarking on a journey downward that took him from the absolute cosmic heights of glory down to the lowest possible depths of shame. Becoming a man, he took the form of a slave and served mankind and became obedient even to God. Obedient even to the point of death. Crucified on a cross as a condemned criminal on a God-forsaken hill outside Jerusalem. That's what it means to be the Christ, the Apostle Paul says. He's not defined in terms of earthly power and glory like the disciples had imagined, like we sometimes imagine. But instead, he's defined by heavenly power and glory. And moreover, his rejection of that heavenly power and glory. He left it to come serve humanity in meekness and humility. Man seeks power, the Christ comes in weakness. Man seeks honor, the Christ comes in humility. Man seeks glory, the Christ comes in shame. He has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So, we confess, you are the Christ of God. And by that, what we mean is humility. Humility that receives its definition in the cross. So, this is what the disciples can't comprehend. They're still natural in their thinking. They're waiting, awaiting their thrones, right? You remember that uh, passage in Matthew 20 where... James and John come up to Jesus and say, we want you to give us whatever we want. And what do they want? To sit on his right hand and his left in his glory. They're natural men still. They haven't been converted, but they will. It's not a coincidence that immediately following this passage about the disciples' ignorance is a story about a blind man receiving back his sight. Jesus comes to the man, and he grants him his request. And the passage says, Verse 43, immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. So, so what happened? His eyes were opened, and he began following Jesus. Now, he anticipates the disciples' own conversion from blindness to sight. They're following Jesus, but they don't quite yet know why. Their spiritual eyes will be opened, and they too will learn to follow the crucified Christ. So after the resurrection, they're still ignorant, right? They don't know the meaning of what's, been, what's taken place. And so the passage says, Jesus appears to his disciples after the resurrection. Then, listen, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. There's the eureka moment. The, the light bulb has went on. The penny has dropped. It makes sense now. The cross. Why he would die on our behalf. What it means to be a disciple. It, it clicked. So he opened their minds. And what they understood was the centrality of the cross. And from that point on, the cross of Jesus Christ would become the point of reference for everything that the apostles did. And the lesson that they learned, they teach us. The cross, for us, 
some 2,000 years after the fact, is central to all that we do, all that we are. And that's our third point. We need that eureka moment. We realize what it is that Christ defines, or, or that the cross defines Christ. And then the last one, the cross defines discipleship. The cross defines what it means for, for you and I to follow Jesus. So in other words, his self-sacrificial obedience is the pattern that determines what obedience looks like for us. So let me show you one example that I hope to give you that you can apply to any situation in your life. Now, this is, comes from the, the, Paul's epistle to the Romans. The Roman church was struggling with various disputes between Jews and Gentiles about food, eating kosher and all these different things, um, about what days to worship on, and other scruples that threatened to undo the entire community, right? There was not a lot of unity and brotherly love there and understanding. Each one was kind of vying for his own. And so it was a situation that had to be resolved and look at how the apostle resolves it. So after a lot of discussion in, First Corinthians, or in Romans 14, he kind of sums things up here in Romans 15, verses 1 through 3. He says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. So the strong are to serve the weak. What does that sound like? It sounds like the cross. It sounds like Jesus. And he says, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even if Christ, for even rather, Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So Paul turns a church engaged in self-interested conflict. It should be this way. No, it should be this way. I want this. No, I want this. He turns them toward the crucifixion, just as Jesus did, not pleasing himself, not coming to be served, he says, but instead suffering for the good of others, just as Jesus did, so are we to do for one another. The strong are to put aside their strength to serve the weak. So those of you who feel like you can eat anything, well, there are those who don't. So you shouldn't use your food to destroy them, right? If Jesus would die for them, you're going to use, you know, your food to have your way. So it may seem ridiculous, right, to compare Jesus giving up his life on the cross to the strong giving up certain foods. But the point is, the cross is our example. It's the paradigm for what obedience looks like in all situations, so what does God want from you as a member of this church with a commitment to these brothers and sisters? What does God want from you as a husband or a wife, as a parent or a child, as an employer who has oversight of others or an employee who has to follow rules? What about as a brother or sister? What does God want from you? Look to the cross. Whatever God wants from you, whatever his will is, it won't look different than the self-sacrifice of Jesus. It won't look different than the setting aside of one's own privileges and desires and power to serve others. 
It's always going to look what God's, God's will. It's always going to look like what Jesus did on the cross. So if you have a proposed solution to such and such a problem at home or at work or wherever, and it ends with you on top and others beneath you, right? It ends with you getting your way. It's probably not God's will. If you approach a marital or family issue and throw your weight around like one of the disciples, like a bully, it's probably not God's will. Right? If you want to stand back and wait for other people in the church to do the hard parts of serving, to get in there and to do the hard stuff, it's probably not God's will. God's will for you as his child is to follow his son. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So God desires us to continue along that cruciform path of Jesus. But it's not merely a negative thing. Right? We lose our lives to save them. It's a positive thing. And along that way, that cruciform path, lies eternal life. Remember last week, the disciples did what the rich young ruler could not. And Jesus said, the path you're following leads to eternal life. Where does that path go? Straight through the cross. So eternal life is not something abstractly deposited into our accounts, but something experienced in the doing. God invites us to to submit to what seems like in our lives, like death, to deny ourselves, to, to turn away from pleasing the flesh, only to realize that in doing so, we've never really lived. That wasn't life. And so to receive eternal life for the first time. So, God's power in our lives comes in our weakness. It says, you want eternal life? Walk that way of the cross. His power comes in weakness. His wisdom in our life comes in our own foolishness. His presence, his nearness comes in our humility, as it did on the cross. It's no different. That's the way it works for us. And so we say, right, with the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the crucified man on the cross, for it is the power of God to everyone who believes. So, as the music plays, I just want to invite you to take time to respond to the word preached in repentance, if need be, and thanksgiving, of course, and praise. Prepare your hearts to receive Holy Communion in a worthy manner, And I will lead us in celebration in just a few moments. Go ahead and do that now.